This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm in studio with Zwelani Tulo Nositlezuma as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Sudan's top officials of the new government are deadlocked over appointment of cabinet ministers. Senior judges at the ICC authorize an investigation into alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. And the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention is urging African countries to increase their efforts to combat the coronavirus. We'll also have your economics as well as your sporting news later on in the hour. But right now, I think it's time for us to cross on over to Zwalani Tulo for your latest news bulletin. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Morocco's health ministry has confirmed its first death from the coronavirus in Casablanca. The overall number of new infections rose to three. The dead patient who entered Morocco from from Italy is an 89-year-old Moroccan woman suffering from respiratory and heart diseases. Morocco cancelled all trips to and from Italy and and banned fans from attending football matches, cancelled events involving foreign travellers and gatherings of more than 1,000 people as precautionary measures to avert an outbreak of the virus. Meanwhile, a meeting of ministers from the SADC region has recommended a temporary suspension of regional face-to-face meetings as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. The meeting, which took place in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, was aimed at sharing existing knowledge and information on the COVID-19 outbreak in the region. To date, the virus has claimed more than 4,000 lives globally. In South Africa, seven patients are being treated. Prabhashni Mudli reports. Urged member states to put in place national preparedness response plans and emergency funds to address gaps in prevention. Ministers have agreed on how to harmonize and coordinate their responses to COVID-19 in the SADC region. As a temporary measure, leaders in the SADC region will use video conferences and webinars as a means of communication. COVID-19 was declared a public health emergency of international concern by the World Health Organization in January. The African Center for Disease Control says all nine countries on the continent that have reported cases of the deadly coronavirus have the capacity to do lab tests. The Africa CDC has also provided kits to 43 African Union countries. Africa has reported a total of 90 positive cases of the COVID-19 in nine countries. The latest figures indicate that there are now 100 confirmed coronavirus cases across Africa. Egypt has the most with 55, Algeria has 20, and South Africa 7. Meanwhile, the authorities in Zimbabwe are searching for a man who absconded from a hospital before he was due to be tested for the coronavirus. Zimbabwe currently has no confirmed cases of the COVID-19. 
South Africa's President Soro Ramaphosa's legal representative Peter Harris says the High Court in the capital Pretoria's ruling against public protector Busum Kwebane on the CR17 matter is a resounding victory for the President. The court set aside the public protector's CR17 report declaring it, it invalid and unlawful. Ramaphosa had taken the findings regarding his presidential campaign in 2017 on judicial review. Harris was in court when a full bench of judges made the ruling. It was a resounding victory for the President and entirely just an excellent judgment we thought and we the fact that a punitive cross order has been granted against the public protector we think is uh, is necessary I think in doing so the court obviously made a clear statement of its disapproval you know the number of adjectives used or negative adjectives used to describe her conduct were significant unlawful irrational reckless not showing partiality or an open mind I think that those are very sad reflection upon the current occupier of the office of the public protector. In fact, if it weren't so tragic, it would almost be a joke. And finally, the lower house of parliament in Russia has backed constitutional changes which could keep President Vladimir Putin in power until 2036. The reforms would allow him to run again in four years when he's due to step down. Putin says the constitutional court will have the final say and the changes be put to a popular vote. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford reports. This announcement confirms what was always suspected, that Vladimir Putin was looking for a way to stay in power. He's meant to step down in 2024 after almost a quarter of a century as Russian president. But according to this new plan, he won't have to. Instead, the clock on his two-term limit will be reset then, allowing him to remain in office potentially for another 12 years. In a highly unusual move, Mr Putin came to address Parliament in person after a former cosmonaut turned MP argued that he should have the option of re-election. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tudo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Starting off in Sudan, where top officials of the new government are deadlocked over appointment of cabinet ministers in the new government of national unity, which was formed more than two weeks ago. To tell us more, here's James Shimanula. It is now more than two weeks since an inclusive government of national unity was formed in South Sudan. The peace agreement stipulates that cabinet ministers should be named in the first week that the government is in place. However, up to now, the ministers have not been appointed because top officials of the government are deadlocked over ministerial positions. The peace agreement that paved the way for the formation of a government of national unity on the 22nd of last month allocated 20 ministries to President Salva Kiir's side, while the side of opposition leader Riek Machar got nine ministries. Former detainees got three ministries, and smaller political parties got one ministry each, while South Sudan Opposition Alliance, which brings together... More than 10 bigger opposition groups have been allocated three ministries. Now, the alliance says it requires more ministerial posts because it comprises 10 opposition groups. The alliance also claims that it has not been allocated governorship posts. Peter Majong, a top official in President Salva Kiir's office, says a special committee has been put in place to deal with the deadlock over the allocation of ministerial posts to the opposition alliance 
which, as I have said earlier, comprises 10 big opposition political groups. The committee, which is the political committee that has, was dealing with the allocation of ministerial position, were able to reconcile with the South Sudan Opposition Alliance, but they definitely reach a deadlock with the SPLM IO. And, uh, and, and the deadlock is about uh, the ministerial positions. James Akuk, an independent South Sudan political analyst, sheds light on the delay to appoint ministers in the country. The delay is caused by inabilities of the parties to trust themselves and to look at each other as partners who are supposed to work together, uh, regardless of which ministry or which portfolio each of them is holding. They are not partners as the agreement would like them to be. Makwala Majok, another independent analyst on political issues in South Sudan, had this take on the delay to appoint ministers in the new government. This is a negative indication that uh, the implementation of the revitalized agreement will not go on smoothly without serious uh, pressure from the neighbors, uh, from the region, and from the international community at large. If those parties are left alone, they will never move South Sudan forward. Also commenting on the delay to appoint ministers in South Sudan is Joel Payak, one of the country's prominent activists. All of us, we are really disturbed given the fact that the undersecretaries are now running the ministries and we do not really have a, a complete government now in power so this one is uh, we, we really disturbed and we really wanted to make sure that the government is formed as soon as possible to get more crucial details of the delay on appointing ministers in south sudan i reached by telephone mabior garang mabior spokesman for opposition leader rieki machar there are some groups which are not satisfied with the process that has been done which group the South Sudan Opposition Alliance. The one that comprises the various uh, opposition uh, groups. Why are they complaining? They are not satisfied with what? Because the government and the uh, I.O., they sat and they took the lion's share. We have defense, which uh, Kuala Onyang Juk was heading. Yeah, yeah. And then we have interior. Mm. And then we have petroleum. Yeah, finance. Finance. Now, mm. who should uh, Mabior take these positions? Is it... Uh, Salva Kiri's group, Machara's group. That question is a, it's a non-starter because the agreement is clear how things are supposed to be done, but it has, nothing has gone according to the process. So whenever whenever the interest of a particular group is not, uh, they, they see their interests uh, violated, they invoke the agreement. It's not from our side, it's from other groups. In other words, for example, if one were to say that it's not Riek Machar's group, nor is it uh, Salva Kiri's group. You think they'll resolve it as soon as possible? They might need another 10 days. That was Mabior Garang Mabior, spokesman for South Sudan opposition leader Riek Machar. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Senior judges at the International Criminal Court, otherwise known as the ICC, have authorized an investigation into alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity in Afghanistan, overturning an earlier rejection of the inquiry. The probe will be led by ICC prosecutor Fatal Ben Soda and will look at actions by United States, Afghan and Taliban troops. Ben Soda made the request for a probe to the ICC's pre-trial chamber in 2017. 
At the time, her office cited grave crimes and the absence of relevant national proceedings against those who appear to be most responsible for the most serious crimes. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Clemens Bechtarte, litigation coordinator for the International Federation for Human Rights, otherwise known as the FIDH, in Paris, France. Well, this decision is a major decision. First of all, it's a formidable act of independence of the court, which has been accused over the last past years uh, of being dependent and of not being able to hold major powers to account. And this is really the issue of international justice as a whole and of the International Criminal Court. Will this court be uh, able to hold major powers to account? And this decision may be a major step towards independence of the court and also towards affirming that this may be possible. But the United States is not a member of the ICC. In fact, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo condemned the appeals chamber's overturning of the earlier decision calling the ICC an unaccountable political institution masquerading as a legal body. What do you say to this? Well, there is a major obligation from state parties to the ICC now to uphold their position of support to the court uh, because we know uh, that the court will be uh, subjected to tremendous political attacks from the United States after this decision from the Court of Appeal. Uh, There were already uh, threats uh, by the Trump administration uh, against Fatou Ben-Souda herself and against her team following her request to open an investigation into these crimes. And we know from the recent declarations from Mike Pompeo that these threats and attacks will continue. So we call on uh, state parties, um, European Union um, states, but also the whole state parties to the ICC uh, to reaffirm their support to the independence of the court, uh, because this investigation will probably suffer major, again, attacks to the independence of the court. And it is important, and it is the duty and the obligation of state parties to protect and to shield the court and the office of the prosecutor uh, for any attacks that would hinder this investigation. The U.S. faces the question of whether to sanction the court and act that uh, the Trump administration has the legal authority to do, but that will likely trigger a backlash by U.S. allies that would far outweigh any perceived benefits from sanctions. What legal authority does the U.S. have to sanction the court if that is the route the U.S. is willing to take? Could they use perhaps the existing global Magnitsky sanctions program? Well, uh, we do not know yet to what extent they will um, uh, obey to their threats, I would say. They have a power to act, obviously, and to pronounce sanctions. They have already uh, taken out the visa of Fatou Ben Souda um, to, um, and, and denied her the authorization to access as well as all the Office of the Prosecutor staff to access the United States. There could be multiple other uh, sanctions. But again, um, it is really important now that the... Um, state parties to the Rome Statute, to the International Criminal Court, take strong stances to support the court in its independence and in the investigation that will be done. We know also that there will be, of course, absolutely no cooperation from the United States in this investigation, no cooperation um, from uh, Afghanistan also. Um, And so we think that this will be a major challenge for the court uh, to be able to move forward in this investigation, uh, to be able maybe to issue uh, acts of accusation in international arrest warrants. We hope that this will be the case, but again, we're lucid and we know that there will be 
tremendous threats and attacks now against the court. The decision comes less than a week after the U.S. signed a peace deal with the Taliban aimed at ending 18 years of conflict during which 157,000 people have died. There is also a political stalemate in Afghanistan as rival presidents have inaugurated themselves. Will this frustrate the investigation, do you think? Well, there has been a very old debate uh, between the articulation between uh, peace and justice. But uh, we think that history has shown in multiple cases um, that there cannot be sustainable peace if there is no place for justice and if there's no place for recognition of the rights of victims uh, and to hold the perpetrators of the gravest international crimes to account. So I think that we should be very cautious in these also attacks and discourse that would oppose Uh, the peace process and uh, the investigation that has just been opened. Again, there is no contrariety between peace and justice. There cannot be peace without justice. So I think it's very important to recall it. And this is the views of the victims in Afghanistan, but also the victims of this torture program that was put in place by the Bush administration. There is a very strong call for justice, a very strong need also for justice in um, a situation of total impunity. And this must not be put aside in the name of peace. This would be a a strong political mistake. And that's Clemens Bakhtarte. Litigation Coordinator for the International Federation for Human Rights on the line from Paris and France talking to Kumbelo Munjelele. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it. Don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think we should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. This is Africa Digest. An online poll of 40,000 young people in over 150 countries has revealed that many young people feel their current education is not preparing them with the skills that they need to get jobs. According to the poll, the key skills young people want to acquire in order to help them gain employment in the next decade include leadership followed by analytical thinking and innovation and information and data processing. Separately, a global survey by PwC found that 74% of CEOs around the world said they are concerned about finding the right skills to grow their business. Now PwC and the United Nations Children's Fund, otherwise known as UNICEF, have joined forces to boost youth skills worldwide. To talk to us more on this, we are joined on the line by Barry Foster, partner in uh, PwC's People and Organization Division. Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners. Now Barry, could you tell us uh, about your partnership with UNICEF and PwC? 
Yes, I, I think it's quite an important, important partnership. It's a global partnership. Um, we have similar initiatives. In the case of UNICEF, they have an initiative with the aspiration of training or creating learning opportunities for 1.8 billion young people globally. And PwC, through our New World New Skills Initiative, is looking at doing something similar but focusing ourselves on, on about 15 million young people. Now, if you look at those numbers that you mentioned earlier, there's about 71 million young unemployed people and probably around 50% uh, of the unemployed in, or, or uh, the youth in South Africa, about 53% of them are also unemployed. So there's a real imperative for both of us to find innovative ways to look at this generation in the age group of 15 to 24 and really help them find jobs that are the jobs of tomorrow, whether those be human-focused or more technically-focused. And why do you see it fit for your global organization to take part in this program? Okay, I think there's, there's, there's a real need for organizations globally to think further than just um, or apportioning responsibility to the government and or um, parts of the NGO sector. I really think it's incumbent on, on corporate companies like ourselves in the case of PwC to think of the larger societal implications and societal responsibilities and what we need to do uh, in the countries we are, we are represented in, in terms of helping young people. And I think that's what we've decided to do on a global level because it's a, a key priority for, for, for PwC, but probably should be a key priority for most developing and developed countries in the world. There's, there's a real need to upskill the global workforce um, uh, uh, across m- most sectors. And, and, and one would think that those would only be, let's say, financial services, but that, that goes from agriculture right through to retail. All right, Barry, could you explain to us how this collaboration is going to work exactly? I think there, there are two or three focus points. In South Africa specifically, we're going to focus our time on helping young people with what we refer to as STEAM skills. So mm-hmm. those are typically science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And in, in one case, we're going to focus our, our, our efforts on a program called TechnoGirl. And that is working with young women from grade 9 to 11 um, across those three years to provide them with opportunities to gain an understanding of technical environments. With, with a very specific aim of not only providing them with skills, but also helping them understand um, whether they would like to go into those kinds of jobs. And to date, UNICEF has had very good um, results in helping young women choose STEM careers and then successfully entering those careers and, and, and making uh, you know, uh, uh, or opening up additional opportunities for other young women into in, into similar careers. And I think that's really what we want to achieve. I think that on the one hand. On the other hand, we, we want to partner with UNICEF also around training broad a broader group of people on mm-hmm. robotics and computing within uh, areas which range from, range from Alex uh, and, and, and other areas around Cape Town. And, and to see how we can do some of that. And then lastly, I, I think what we also want to do is to 
the reduced the amount of bureaucracy that systemically affects young people and their access either to education or further education and to make sure that we can unlock some of the, the funding that's already in the system. And lastly, do you think the collaboration will bring much-needed difference for young people? But we, I, I do think so. I, I also think we've got massive aspirations. Um, and I think those aspirations are on two levels. Um, the one is is to focus on those programs that we've just spoken about, but also, and that's why talking to you on today is, is quite important, is to change the perception and increase the advocacy so that we as a country and as a populace and as a government can understand how dire the need is to to upskill the people of our country and to do so as we are competing in a new global economy. And so therefore, I think, yes, we will make a change. But I think we also have to aspire more broadly to say we as a society need to find more innovative um, ways to collaborate and make that change at a, at, a, at a substantial level, which is in the millions of people. All right, Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Hope you have a good evening. You too. And that was Barry Foster, partner in PwC's People and Organization Division. Building Africa with love. Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. The Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention, otherwise known as Africa CDC, is urging African countries to increase their efforts to combat the coronavirus, whose cases on the continent are now on the increase. The Africa CDC says as of the 10th of March, The continent of Africa had 101 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi spoke to Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, the Deputy Director of Africa CDC. Um, All the index cases are imported. Um, They are largely uh, foreigners coming into African countries. Um, A few are Africans returning back, uh, largely from Europe. So um, the situation as we have it now, all the index cases have a history of traveling to one of the epicenters where uh, coronavirus is currently um, um, uh, spreading. Um, For Africa, we are still at the stage where we are dealing with the initial cases and their immediate contacts. It has not yet uh, spread out into the community. How prepared are we as a continent? 
Um, currently, we are working with the countries at three different levels. Uh, the first level is building capacity for enhanced surveillance. Uh, that means that at points of entry, um, the gadgets that are required, the knowledge that is required, and the facilities that are required to, con uh, to contain any possible case, uh, we are working with governments across Africa to be able to build that. The second level is laboratory diagnosis. Um, initially, we only had two labs that uh, could be able to diagnose uh, uh, COVID-19. Today, 43 countries can be able to do that. And by the end of this month, we think we'll have reached all 55 uh, member states. Um, the third level is preparedness in general. This means engaging with the public so that they get the correct information. This means engaging with health workers so that they are able uh, to protect themselves as they deal with uh, uh, possible uh, cases. Uh, this means the government sets in place machinery that releases resources as they are required. We have guidance that we have shared with member states and uh, most member states are following this guidance and therefore preparedness is increasing, not as fast as we would want, but preparedness is increasing in Africa. We have seen different countries reacting differently, some stopping flights, others preventing entry into several parts of their country and all that. Does the Africa CDC have a standard measure of preventive measures, uh, I mean, as far as uh, travel is concerned? In Africa CDC, we have issued a guidance in as far as movements and restriction of movements for people who are at risk is concerned. That particular guideline is very clear on how to categorize people into high risk and um, medium risk and no risk. So depending on which level of risk someone falls, then there is a way of dealing with that particular individual. It is not generalized to countries, to regions or communities. It is specific to a particular individual. We discourage um, the stigmatization of whole regions or communities because that results in people hiding. And when people hide, often they are hiding something that is bad and therefore uh, can result in uh, undetected spread uh, for a while. Much as we have been prepared to a certain extent, uh, what are some of the challenges that we are foreseeing? Let me start with Africa CDC. Uh, the kind of resources we require to be able to prepare countries effectively and for us to be able to give support uh, at both continental and regional level, we do not have enough. Indeed, we, uh, we barely have a quarter of what we need. Um, countries, on the other hand, are probably doing a little worse. Uh, this is because health systems are weak and the preparation that is required to make the health systems ready uh, for uh, a significant number of COVID-19 uh, uh, patients is, is high. Um, but we are encouraging countries to do this in a stepwise fashion as we mobilize resources. Uh, to this end, we are talking with partners, uh, both in uh, um, the philanthropy space, um, in the development space, uh, in the humanitarian space, and in the private sector. We are talking with partners so that they can be able to avail the resources that are required. And that was Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, the Deputy Director of the Africa Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, talking to Coletta Wanjohi in Addis Ababa. It's now 17.31 Central African Time. Here's your latest news headlines with Zuelani Tolo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you, Samara. Making headlines, Morocco's health ministry has confirmed its first death from the coronavirus in Casablanca. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa's legal representative, Peter Harris, says the High Court in the capital Pretoria's ruling against public protector Busum Kwebani on the CR17 matter is a resounding victory for the president. And finally, the lower house of parliament in Russia has backed constitutional changes which could keep President Vladimir Putin in power until 2036 for for Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. The UN Child Agency is supporting the ongoing deployment of extra capacities for from government and NGO partners to the 25 most vulnerable districts across Zimbabwe. They aim to reach nearly 20,000 acutely malnourished children with life-saving support. Zimbabwe is facing a food crisis that has seen international appeals for humanitarian assistance. Jane Rabutata has more. Zimbabwe is currently facing multiple hazards which have a big impact on the basic social services, especially health and nutrition. There's widespread economic meltdown, recurrent drought, and the country just came out of the March 2019 cyclone disaster. As a result, humanitarian aid agencies have had to step up their programs across the Southern African nation with the UN Child Agency leading nutrition programs. Dr. Paul Mwakum is UNICEF Zimbabwe's Chief of Health and Nutrition. The economic meltdown has caused financial barriers. So the people who are already vulnerable, they cannot come to their health centers. And the fact that they have limited nutrition has consequences on the health outcomes, especially for women and the children under five. But there are other issues. Because of the drought, we have reduced water supply. Because of the drought, we have recurrent power cuts. And this reduces availability of water. And when you have no water, there is chances of having outbreaks of diarrheal diseases. And in addition, because of no power, we cannot run refrigerators. So you cannot keep the basic supplies, including vaccines, under uh, very good conditions. So these are the consequences of the multiple hazards for Zimbabwe on the social services, specifically health mm-hmm. and nutrition. John Musindo is a registered general nurse at Roa Clinic in Mutare in Manikaland province. He reflects on early marriage, a negative coping mechanism that is also of concern in the country. Early marriage is also an issue in our society. Teenage girls are being married, um, maybe with older men, some with men of their own age group. However, the real problem comes when these men, they deny responsibility of the pregnancy. As a result, they run away to to stay in the bigger cities, leaving this young mother alone. The humanitarian situation in Zimbabwe is affecting 6.7 million people. This includes 3.2 million children who will be needing aid assistance in 2020. Back to Dr. Mwagom for UNICEF's interventions. Due to this um, situation, we met with the donors and we came out with a contingency plan. And specifically, we have now reoriented the program to take care of specific issues. Number one is 
proper emergency preparedness and response to be able to strike when we need to strike to reduce the shocks. Number two is community-based interventions, making sure that we have integrated outreach Rather than having the population to come to the centers, we go to them because they are having constraints, especially financial constraints, coming. Due to the doctor's strike, we've been discussing with the Zimbabwe Association of Churches Hospitals, where most of the patients now go, and UNICEF has coordinated and we are supporting it with additional supplies to be able to meet the additional number of patients. However, the organization is appealing to the donor community for more funding to address the most urgent needs. Under nutrition, UNICEF is lead agency leading what we call the nutrition cluster. And through the nutrition cluster, we've estimated a gap of about 16 million US dollars to be able to respond to our humanitarian needs. Under health, UNICEF is contributing for health system strengthening among other partners. As of now, we are having a gap of about $18 million to be able to deliver the whole identified interventions for 2020. And this is what we're looking for. That's Dr. Paul Nwakum, UNICEF Zimbabwe's Chief of Health and Nutrition. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. South Africa's health minister, Dr. William Kize, has urged people to refrain from spreading fake news about the coronavirus outbreak in the country. This as the country confirmed that four more people have tested positive for the virus, bringing to seven a total number of people who have tested positive for the coronavirus. The cases are all linked to the 10 people who recently went on a skiing trip to Italy. To discuss the coronavirus fake news further, here's Kate Wilkinson, Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check, uh, the fact verification organization. I think that at the moment we are all dealing just with waves and waves of information about the coronavirus. And the World Health Organization has actually said that the spread of the virus has been accompanied by what it's calling an infodemic. And that means a lot of information, some of it good, some of it bad. And it leaves us, normal people, in a bit of a tricky situation of figuring out what we should trust and what we should discard. So since the beginning of the year, Africa Check, which is a fact-checking organization, has been working to fact-check a number of claims, a number of viral messages, and see what's true and what's false. And we generally find that we're seeing a couple different categories of false messages and information. And those are false messages and advice about how to prevent the virus, false messages about how to cure the virus, and then a lot of false information about how many cases there are, how many deaths have been recorded, and where the latest outbreak is. Now, a National Health Laboratory Service uh, um, employee is currently in hot water for allegedly spreading false information that there are cases of the coronavirus at the Prince um, Shiani Memorial Hospital in Umlazi. Now, state employees seem to also have been involved in spreading misinformation, um, which, of course, should be a big concern. Let's talk a little bit about that um, and just the importance of why people that are in positions of influence should particularly not be spreading um, news that they're not sure about. Yeah, I think that when it, when it comes to this issue... There are some common strategies that we should all be following, whether we're the average on the street or we're an official in a health department or the leader of an international organization, and that is that we should only be sharing verified, accurate information. 
I think that we all know the compulsion and the feeling to share something as soon as we get it. We want to be the first to tell our friends. We want to, you know, get some of the credit for mm. breaking a story. But we actually have to step back and think about what that means. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear around this virus. And unless we know for certain what we're sharing is accurate, we really shouldn't share it. And in one area where we've seen this happening is people sharing misinformation and false numbers about the number of people who have been infected with the virus and the number of deaths. Mm -hmm. And the stories that we've been seeing is that there are actually millions of cases that have been confirmed and many more deaths than have been officially reported. And what information like this does is that it reduces the trust that people have in the official statistics that are being released by their governments and by the World Health Organization. And at a time of like this, we can't risk having trust in these credible organizations being eroded because they're also the ones telling us how to protect ourselves and what remedies and cures will and won't work. And if we start eroding that trust, we're not sure what the unintended consequences could be. Now, Kate, just before we let you go, we know that uh, the Africa Czech Group has also reacted uh, to some worrisome suggestions um, that uh, there's been a cure developed in Ghana uh, for the coronavirus. What has been your finding with regards to this? And uh, what about those um, uh, trying to consume bleach or Dettol um, Mm. to ward off uh, these threats of the virus? Yeah, so when it comes to reports that there is a cure or a vaccine. Nothing has been released of that nature yet. If you want to check if a message you've got about a cure or a vaccine is accurate or not, the first place you should go is the World Health Organization's website. They will be the one to break that news. When it comes to home remedies, I would really caution listeners to be very careful. We've seen incredibly dangerous messages during the rounds. Like you mentioned, there has been viral messages claiming that that bleach or bleach solution, if consumed, can either prevent or cure you from the virus. And I, I think most listeners would agree that that sounds like a terrible idea. Not only is there no scientific evidence to support the claim that it can cure or prevent the virus, Drinking and consuming bleach is incredibly dangerous to your health. It can result in severe vomiting and it can damage your internal organs to the state where they actually start shutting down. So please don't do that. Um, If you receive a home remedy and you think you're sick, give your doctor a ring, speak to a nurse, and really try and make the best decision you can for your health and the health of your family. And that was Kate Wilkinson, Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check, on the line talking to Zekonomiso. A year after the deadly cyclone, rather, cyclone Adai struck in uh, Chimanimani and some parts of Mozambique in March last year, victims are in despair. Hundreds whose homes were destroyed are still living in squalid conditions in rain-leaking tents with less food or income. While government is soon going to allocate new residential stands for the victims, not all will benefit as already corruption has been reported, benefiting the political heavyweights. Houses that were pledged by companies and the Chinese embassy are yet to be built. Simon Muchemwa reports. Enna Muvimi is a 76-year-old grandmother of three and a widow who is not employed but lives in Yamatanda camp in Chimanimani after Cyclone Idai. The old lady can hardly fend for herself as all her belongings were swept away in March last year during Cyclone Idai that killed hundreds and left a trail of destruction. Enna 
His two sons, who apparently do not stay with him and are both not formally employed, like hundred other cyclone die victims living in tents, Anna is pinning her hopes on the promises made by the government and various other stakeholders that her home would be rebuilt. A year later, only a few promises had been made, but her living conditions are yet to change, she told Channel Africa. They once came with cash, but they have since stopped. And now, they were giving us food handouts that comprised of millimeal, beans, dried carpenter, and we have been given food twice this year. Simba Juwao also lives in Yamatanda camp where 100 more survivors of Cyclone Idai are housed. Simba was not a house owner, but when the cyclone struck, he was renting a house in Gangu in Chimanimani and lost all his belongings. It is his wish government will give him a piece of land and at least to start building his own house. It is very painful. I wish they would just give us some land to build our homes. This could help us as these tents are now leaking each time it rains such that our kids are always falling sick. And that report was by Simon Muchemwa. 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Nosehle Zuma with the latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. The South African Reserve Bank says that the impact of the coronavirus is already starting to affect supply chains, global logistics and tourism. The central bank says that the financial market reactions reflect the uncertainty the world is facing. South Africa has even seven confirmed cases of the virus. The coronavirus has called major uncertainty on global markets, including those in the U.S. Edzani Mudanabula reports. It says that based on this assessment, it will take appropriate steps in accordance with its constitutional mandate to mitigate the risks to the South African economy. The bank's monetary policy committee is scheduled to announce its rate decision next week Thursday. Zanemo Danabura, SABC News, Johannesburg. South African Trade and Industry Minister Ibrahim Patel says the latest announcement of a 30% reduction in data prices by Vodacom will help this to stimulate economic activity. Patel says consumers will benefit from the free internet services offered by Vodacom's Connect You social platform. He says the reductions are expected to increase data consumption. Vodacom also announced that it would offer two free daily SMSs to all prepaid users who have had at least one revenue-generating activity in the preceding 30-day period. Patel was addressing the media in Pretoria. So these are means of stimulating greater, uh, greater activity in the economy. If indeed consumers benefit to the tune of 2.7 billion rand, then that is in itself a stimulus in two ways. It will, uh, we think, Uh, And in all probability, it will increase consumption of data, 
So that in itself can support many smaller enterprises that are getting into the digital economy, young people with innovations that rely on digitization. The African Development Bank has signed for the release of 200 million US dollars to Nigeria for the expansion of the country's power transmission infrastructure. It was gathered in the capital Abuja on Monday that the fund signed last week by the bank's management would be used under the Nigeria's Transmission Expansion Program. The acting vice president for energy, power, climate and green growth, Well Shoneba, disclosed this on the sidelines of, of his team's visit to the Minister of State Power. Virgin Atlantic has confirmed it has been forced to operate some near-empty flights after bookings were dented by the coronavirus outbreak. It is operating the flights to try to retain take-off and landing slots at major airports such as Heathrow. Under European law, it if flights are not operated, slots have to be forfeited. United Kingdom Transport Secretary Grant Sharps has written to the European Commission asking for rules on slot allocation to be relaxed during the outbreak. Other carriers are thought to be taking similar steps, even reportedly flying so-called ghost planes with no passengers on board at all in order to safeguard their presence at major hubs. And the Democratic Republic of Congo has granted an insurance license to a subsidiary of Hong Kong-listed Frontier Services Group, FSG, a security and logistics company run by Eric Prince, the founder of private security firm Blackwater. Prince, who renamed, who renamed Blackwater and sold it in 2010 after several of its employees were ind- indicted on unlawful killing charges related to their work during the Iraq war, has run FSG. SG since 2014. The company has a subsidiary in Congo with a mandate to extract and sell minerals and work in security. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 363 Nigerian Naira 79, 10 Botswana Bula 98, 101 Kenyan Shilling 90, and at 15 Zambian Guacha 24. In BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollar will cost you 4 Brazilian Rule 68, 73 Russian Ruble 87, 74 Indian Rupee 37, 6 Chinese Yuan 94, and 16 South, South African Rand 08. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1,605.65 dollars and platinum at 874 dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is 36 dollars 88 cents a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nasiche Zuma. And now for your sport, here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. From the Sports Desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. 
South African and Indian cricket teams have arrived in Northern Hill Town of Dharamsala for a three-match one-day international series amid a rising number of coronavirus cases in the country. The fast-spreading coronavirus has reached some 80 nations, with more new cases now reported outside China, where the flu-like illness first emerged in the central city of Wuhan late last year. The virus has killed more than 4,000, most of them in China. It has infected more than 114,000 people globally, with India reporting over 40 confirmed cases. Coronavirus has had a major impact on sports, with a number of international sporting events either cancelled or postponed after the outbreak. On to swimming news. Swimming South Africa President Alan Fritz will contest for the Saskok, South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee presidency at the end of the month. Fritz has become the latest candidate to throw his hat into the ring for the eagerly awaited elections on the 28th of this month. Fritz will be contesting with the likes of current acting Saskok President Perry Hendricks and Athletic South Africa President Alex Kosana. There is a number of people that's made themselves available to serve Sesco and that augurs well because that means they have the interest of the country now. But we need quality leadership and I have made myself available only based on two elements is that what can I do for Sesco and what is it that I want to do for our athletes. My point of view is I can bring a lot to Sesco. Uh, I've always been a corporate executive. I know how to manage organizations. I've been a chief executive of an organization. I've been a chief operating officer. I've been a marketing executive. My own competence is that of human resources executive. I've served organizations in multiple uh, capacity. I'm a strategist in this organization. I know how, what it is to build and manage organizations. The election battle is said to be an ugly one with many candidates disqualified from contesting, such as veteran administrator Ndambira Vele, Skosana, Netball South Africa President Cecilia Molokwani, and Free State Rugby President Jerry Sekwaba. However, Fritz believes that the election process is fair. I've got no doubt in my mind. I don't know the full context of uh, Barry Hendricks and Vele uh, issue. I can say without a shade of a doubt. The nomination process, the nominations committee's vetting thereof, the submission to the audit company, which is Mazars, and the distribution thereof, I have my full, full confidence that it's complying with what's in the constitution of SESCO and what the regulations are that the Ministry of Sport has advised and what we as a general council at SESCO has adopted. Former Saskok President Gideon Sam is not allowed to run for the presidency due to the age restriction. The organization's internal squabbles have been well documented over the last few years, which led to the then Minister of Sport, Togozile Klasa, to institute the Ministerial Committee to investigate irregularities in the governance and management of Saskok. Fritz says there are big problems in the organization. Now, my perspective is very simple. Uh, there's no sport without a National Olympic Committee, and that's the purpose of SESCO. SESCO uh, is the Olympic Committee, but also the Confederation for other sports in our country that are not Olympic sports. And it's, it, the role of SESCO is to promote high-performance sport. There is an element of uh, looking at building grassroots sport, 
but that by and large is the responsibility of a national federation. Sescock over the last four years has, to my mind, uh, almost imploded on itself. I'll be the first to admit that uh, previous president or the past president Gideon Sam and the first eight years of his um, presidency was the best, it was golden years for Sesco. Something went fundamentally wrong. Channel Africa. From an African perspective, for Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samura Mangesi, producer Leb Muswewo, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. Should you want to send us an email, you can do so, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us a WhatsApp message on plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven and tweet us at Channel Africa One. Right now, taking us to the top of the hour is Yetlisano Moya by Busimlongo. We'll see you later. <laughs>